At night, we lay down to rest. Each man with his firelock in his grasp remained at his post, anxiously waiting the arrival of the morrow, which was destined to be the last that many amongst us were to behold. We had no fires, and the death-like stillness that reigned throughout our army was only interrupted by the occasional challenge of an advanced sentry, or a random shot fired at some imaginary foe. The night at length passed over, but long before the dawn of the day the warlike preparations of the enemy were to be heard. The trumpets sounded for the horsemen to prepare for the fight, and the roll of the drums and shrill notes of the fife gave notice to the French infantry that the hour had arrived when its claim to be the best in Europe was to be disputed. On our side, all was still as the grave. Lord Wellington lay amongst his soldiers under no other covering than his cloak, and as he passed through the ranks of the different battalions already formed, his presence and manner gave that confidence to his companions which had a magical effect. All was now ready for our part. The men stood to their arms, and as each soldier took his place in the line, his quiet demeanour and orderly but determined appearance was a strong contrast to the bustle and noise which prevailed amongst our opposite neighbours. But those preparations were of short continuance, and some straggling shots along the brow of the mountain gave warning that we were about to commence the Battle of Busaco. Hi guys, Happy New Year to you and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast. Let's keep our fingers crossed for a great 2021, God knows we need it. Before I get started today, I just wanted to ask if you would support the podcast by being sure to subscribe and also to share it with friends and family who you think might be interested. If you could, I'd really appreciate it as I really want this podcast and this YouTube channel to grow and to keep spreading these stories of British military history. In this month's episode, we're examining the Battle of Busaco, fought in Portugal on the 27th of September 1810. It was another important battle and a huge test, not only for Wellington and his redcoats, but also for the fledgling Portuguese army. The quote at the start of this episode was from William Grattan, a subaltern with the 88th Regiment, a.k.a. the Connaught Rangers, a hard-drinking, hard-fighting Irish unit. I think it gives a great sense of the atmosphere before a large battle. It had been over a year since the last major battle fought by Wellington and the British in the Peninsula War. But the expeditionary force hadn't been relaxing. For many units, such as the famous Light Division under Black Bob Crawford, the tempo of operations had been high as they had manoeuvred and skirmished constantly with the French during the previous few months. I'll cover those engagements in more detail in my next book, but for now I'm keen to move the story on quickly and try and focus on the bigger battles. Let's keep the momentum of this story rolling. I do, though, need to briefly bring you up to date with the bigger picture and the course of events since we last visited the peninsula. In the last episode, my interview with Marcus Cribb, we talked about the Battle of Talavera. Well, after the retreat from Spain in the autumn of 1809, it was inevitable that a reinforced French army would try once more to occupy Portugal and push the British army back into the sea. Whether Portugal could be defended or not had been a long-standing debate amongst the British commanders and politicians. 
General Sir John Moore, who you will remember from episodes three and four of this season, season three, did not believe that Portugal could be defended. But Wellington disagreed and was convinced that Moore had been wrong. Wellington believed that there were three key elements to defending Portugal. The first aspect was to turn the Portuguese army into a strong, legitimate force that could be trusted to hold its own against the French columns. For this job, Lord William Carr Beresford, an experienced British commander who spoke the language fluently, had been given command of the Portuguese army. He now had the local rank of marshal. He could see that it had potential. The new recruits were patriotic, brave and keen for a crack at the French. But many of the older, senior officers lacked the skills and knowledge necessary to lead them. Historian Arthur Bryant described them as, quote, self-indulgent loafers in peacock feathers who gamed, drank, smoked and stank. Possibly a bit harsh, but there may be some truth to some of that. It was decided to counteract this bad influence by sprinkling British officers amongst the Portuguese regiments as a way to improve their training and teach the less experienced officers how to command. British drill was also implemented, and even rifle regiments were formed along British lines. These were called caçadores and would play an important part throughout the rest of the Peninsular War. The second element of Wellington's plan was to build a line of fortifications that would protect Lisbon and stop a French advance in its tracks. This would come to be known as the Lines of Torres Vedras. They were an immense feat of engineering built in almost complete secrecy. I'll be covering the lines in great detail in March in an episode with Mark Thompson, who's a historian focusing a lot on the Royal Engineers during the peninsula. So I'm not going to dwell on this story too much today, but it's useful to know that these lines were beginning to be built during the winter of 1809 to 1810. Thirdly, Wellington's plan to defend Portugal hinged on a scorched earth policy that would leave nothing useful for the French invaders. As the great historian of Wellington, Jack Weller, said, Food mills, ovens and bridges were to be destroyed. Livestock was to be driven off. The people would be forced to move behind the lines of Torres Vedras or take to the hills. This was a big ask. I don't know if I could do it. Would you be willing to destroy everything that you couldn't carry on your back? Even if I hated the French invaders, I'm just not sure that I could bring myself to do that. Imagine burning everything you own. But luckily for Wellington, I wasn't a Portuguese peasant, and it seems that the majority of the people did what they were told. Okay, so while the British were building forts and training the Portuguese, the French were also busy reorganising their army in the peninsula and preparing for the invasion. After Napoleon's decisive victory against the Austrians at Wagram in July 1809, he began sending more troops to the peninsula. For a while it was even assumed that he would come to Spain and take command of the army there himself, but he didn't. Napoleon had too much going on in his personal life, and also it's likely he could see that the war in the peninsula would never bring him an easy victory. Playing whack-a-mole with the brutal guerrillas and chasing the small British army up and down Portugal was not his idea of glory. Instead, he decided to send one of the most experienced and cunning of all his marshals, the Prince of Essling, André Massena. Massena was 52 years old, a veteran who had come up through the ranks during the early stages of the revolution. 
There was no doubt about his military talents. He had an impressive track record, but he was also renowned for his willingness to plunder. He had also been battered by his exertions during the campaign against the Austrians and was physically and mentally exhausted. When he arrived in Spain to take up his command, he told his officers, Gentlemen, I am here contrary to my own wish. I begin to feel myself too old and too weary to go on active service. The Emperor says that I must, and replied to the reasons for declining this post which I gave him, by saying that my reputation would suffice to end the war. It was very flattering, no doubt, but no man has two lives to live on this earth, the soldier least of all. I don't know about you, but if I was one of his subordinates, I wouldn't have been filled with confidence by that speech. To make Massena's new assignment even harder, Napoleon stopped short of giving him full command of the various corps currently active across Spain. He was only to command the newly named Army of Portugal, which was three corps of around 138,000 men in total. This meant that should his force need assistance, Massena couldn't simply order the other marshals to his aid. The French system in the peninsula was already beginning to tear at the seams. Napoleon seemed to only want his marshals to answer directly to him. He had placed his brother Joseph on the Spanish throne, but had given him little actual power. As Wellington wrote to his own brother, This is not the way in which they have conquered Europe. There is something discordant in all the French arrangements for Spain. Joseph divides his kingdom into prefecture, while Napoleon parcels it out into governments. Joseph makes a great military expedition into the south of Spain and undertakes the siege of Cadiz, while Napoleon places all the troops and half the kingdom under the command of Marshal Massena and calls it the Army of Portugal. After taking over command, Massena then dawdled, taking his time to prepare an offensive. Eventually, in April 1810, his army moved against the walled Spanish border city of Ciudad Rodrigo. Ciudad Rodrigo covers the northern invasion route into Portugal and was defended by around 5,000 Spanish troops. The Spaniards put up a stubborn and brave resistance for 10 weeks before finally being forced to surrender. These 10 weeks brought Wellington valuable time to make his own dispositions. After the fall of the city, Massena's troops then crossed the border into Portugal, pushed back the light division in a short, sharp battle on the Coa River and laid siege to the walled city of Almeida. Almeida was defended by 5,000 Portuguese troops, mainly militiamen, and was commanded by a British Brigadier General William Cox. Wellington hoped that it would hold out for a while, delaying the French until the autumn rains began. But a freak accident destroyed the Allied plans. Jack Weller in his book Wellington in the Peninsula describes what happened next. He says, Although Almeida contained bomb-proof casemates, it lacked a central powder magazine. The enormously strong cathedral had been converted to this use and contained many tons of powder. It was strong enough to withstand a direct hit, even by the largest mortar shells. At the commencement of the bombardment, powder was carried from the cathedral to the various ready magazines near the guns on the walls. Kegs and filled cartridges were conveyed through the streets by donkeys. One of these kegs was damaged and left a long trail of powder behind it. A shell falling some distance from the cathedral ignited this train. 
It burned back, not into the magazine itself, but to the entrance where other cartridges awaiting transportation were set off. This comparatively small explosion, after a short interval, caused the main magazine to blow up. End quote. A French witness to the explosion recalled, The earth trembled and we saw an immense whirlwind of fire and smoke rise from the middle of the place. It was like the bursting of a volcano. One of the things that I can never forget after 26 years. Enormous blocks of stone were hurled into the trenches where they killed and wounded some of our own men. Guns of heavy calibre were lifted from the ramparts and hurled down far outside them. When the smoke cleared, a great part of Almeida had disappeared and the rest was a heap of debris. End quote. The result was devastating. 500 of the defenders were killed instantly, including nearly all of the artillerymen. Despite this disaster, General Cox was determined to carry on the defence of the place for as long as possible. But his garrison were now demoralised and demanded that he surrender. He had little choice but to comply, and on the morning of the 28th of August 1810, the garrison marched out of the city into captivity. The road into the interior of Portugal was now open for Massina. Wellington had been using his time wisely. He ordered the civilian populace to retreat with all their belongings towards Lisbon. He had his engineers destroy the roads that the French would use, and he decided on a position to give battle. Before he withdrew his army into their newly built lines of Torres Vedras, he hoped to give Massena's army a bloody nose, which would boost his men's morale and prove to the politicians in London that his army could still be victorious. By the morning of the 26th of September, the British and Portuguese armies were concentrated on the Busaco Ridge. The ridge at Busaco is about 30 kilometers east of the Atlantic Ocean and about 10 kilometers north of the town of Coimbra, which sits on the Mondego River. It's an impressive feature. Even looking on Google Earth today, you get a real sense of what a strong defensive position it must have made, blocking the French line of advance. It rose up 200 metres from the valley floor. There was nowhere that it could easily be climbed, the steep slopes covered with heather and rocks. To defend this 10 mile long ridge, Wellington had just over 50,000 troops, around half of them British, the rest mainly Portuguese. This would be a great chance for them to win their spurs and prove how much they had improved as a fighting force since 1807 and 1808. So if you're listening to the audio-only version of this, I want to try and give you a sense of the initial positions, the initial British positions along this ridge. There will be maps available on the YouTube version, so do check that out if you're more visual and you want to see that. Just check out my YouTube channel, which is Redcoat History. So for now, do me a favor, be creative. Hold up your left hand and then tilt it ever so slightly to the left so it's canted off at a slight angle. Let's imagine for now that's Busaco Ridge. Down at the bottom towards your wrist joint is Hill's Division. That's the, the right flank of the British force. Hill's Division included the brigades of Inglis, Wilson and Stuart. There was also elements of the Lusitanian Legion on the far right and also Hamilton's Portuguese. On Hill's left was the division of General Leith. Barnes' Brigade included the 1st Battalion, 1st Regiment of Foot, the 9th and the 2nd 38th. Next to them were two Portuguese brigades under Spry and Eben. Moving further north along the ridge 
so follow your, your hand up towards the knuckle, was Picton's 3rd Division. Amongst that was McKinnon's brigade, which included the 45th Nottinghams, the 74th and the 88th, which we're going to hear a lot about during the course of this battle. Picton's other two brigades, one was under Lightburn and included the 2nd Battalion, 5th Regiment of Foot, 2nd 83rd and three companies of the 5th 60th, who we know a lot about now. There was also a Portuguese brigade under a man named Champalimode. Apologies for my terrible pronunciation. As you keep looking up your hand and you move further along the fingers, you see the 1st Division under Spencer. And then as you look up towards your fingernails was a big grouping of British troops around the road and close to the convent of Busaco. These included the Light Division under Black Bob Crawford, as well as elements of the King's German Legion and three independent Portuguese brigades. Wellington clearly saw this as the key point. So I hope that gives you a good sense of the geography. Looking at your left hand may feel slightly odd, but I think it's better than nothing if you don't have access to the maps. So one question about the battle historians are still debating is did Wellington intend to stop the French at Busaco and turn them back, or did he only ever consider it to be some sort of delaying action? I think that the majority of historians believe that it was simply only ever meant to be a delaying action. But not everybody, and I think we're going to be talking about that in March with Dr. Mark Thompson when we look at the lines of Torres Vedras. So do make sure you subscribe to listen to that interview because Dr. Thompson has done some great research in this area. William Tompkinson, who you may recall from previous episodes, a young cavalry officer with the 16th Light Dragoons, summed up the British feelings when he wrote in his diary on September the 26th. At 2pm the whole army was in position along the Sierra. The enemy have closed up their whole force to the hills in front of the position, and a general action is expected. From the nature of our position, I cannot think the enemy will make any serious attack. The descent in places is so steep and great that a person alone cannot, without holding and choosing his ground, get down. I cannot think that they will be so imprudent as to make it a general affair. The army is in most beautiful order, and the Portuguese as fine-looking men and as steady under arms as any in the world. The only doubt rests with them. If they do their duty and the business becomes general, there can be no doubt of success. And that was the key question. Would the Portuguese be able to hold their own? Had their training been successful? Could the Redcoats count on them? Because Busaco is such a long ridge, Wellington had to husband his troops carefully to defend the key points. Therefore, the bulk of his regiments were positioned near the three roads along which he expected the French to advance. From the top of the ridge he could see the French dispositions while keeping his own men well hidden. Therefore, Marshal Massena couldn't be sure of the size or position of the Anglo-Portuguese force, giving Wellington a distinct advantage. Wellington made it clear to his commanders that the men were to be kept behind the crest of the ridge until they were needed to repel an attack. This was a classic Wellington tactic. Wellington, professional and highly organised as always, had even had a road built running laterally along the position that would allow him to quickly redeploy his men along the ridge if he needed to. He was confident that they would hold. But Massina, accustomed to victory, was also certain that his men, numbering around 65,000, would successfully storm the position. He said, 
I cannot persuade myself that Lord Wellington will risk the loss of a reputation by giving battle. But if he does, I have him. Tomorrow we shall effect the conquest of Portugal, and in a few days I shall drown the leopard. The night before the battle, the British and Portuguese were nervous. Many of them hadn't fought in a major action before. Forbidden from lighting campfires, they slept under the stars and waited. The French veterans, meanwhile, relaxed, made jokes and enjoyed their wine. They were a huge army of veterans, confident in their ability to wipe the floor with their Anglo-Portuguese enemies. After the morning mist had begun to clear on the 27th, Marshal Massena formed his men up and threw them in column formation up the steep slopes towards the waiting redcoats. Clearly, he hadn't learned from the French defeats at Vimero, Caruna and Talavera. The huge, dense columns that had intimidated and smashed their way through the armies across Europe rarely had the same effect against the steady, too-deep line of British redcoats and their rapid volley fire. First to attack was Rainier's corps, a bulldozer moving west along the central road against Picton's division. As Jack Weller said, Wellington counted 11 French battalions in three regimental formations, each with a front of a single company. Each column was therefore between 35 and 40 men wide, and 45 or 60 ranks deep. That must have been an intimidating sight. Our old friend Grattan, standing nervously in the infantry line, waiting for the blue-coated mass to attack, recalled. The fog cleared away and a bright sun enabled us to see what was passing before us. A vast crowd of tirailleurs, he means light troops, were pressing onwards with great ardour, and their fire as well as their numbers was so superior to that of our advance that some men of the brigade of Lightburn, as also a few of the 88th Regiment, were killed while standing in line. A colour sergeant named McNamara was shot through the head close beside myself, an ensign Algon. The first French column to be engaged was that under the command of Hudelay, I think that's how you say it. But the heavy musketry of the 1st Battalion 74th and the 21st Regiments of the Portuguese Army, as well as two batteries of Portuguese artillery, ploughed deep lanes through the advancing column until it was brought to a bloody standstill. As this was happening, another French column, slightly to Hudelay's right, consisting of Merlet's division, was able to exploit a gap in the British line and, showing immense determination and fitness, reached the crest of the ridge. Grattan explains what happened next. Lord Wellington was no longer to be seen and Wallace, of the 88th, and his regiment, standing alone without orders, had to act for themselves. The colonel sent his captain of grenadiers, Dunn, to the right, where the rocks were highest, to ascertain how matters stood, for he did not wish, at his own peril, to quit the ground he had been ordered to occupy without some strong reason for doing so. All this time the brigade of Lightburn, as also the 88th, were standing at ordered arms. In a few moments Dunn returned, almost breathless. He said the rocks were filling fast with Frenchmen, that a heavy column was coming up the hill beyond the rocks, and that four companies of the 45th Regiment were about to be attacked. Wallace asked him if he thought that half the 88th would be able to do the business. You'll want every man, was the reply. Wallace, with a steady but cheerful countenance, turned to his men and looking them full in the face said, Now, Connaught Rangers, mind what you are going to do. Pay attention to what I have so often told you. 
And when I bring you face to face with those French rascals, drive them down the hill. Don't give the false touch, but push home to the muzzle. I have nothing more to say, and if I had it would be of no use, for in a minute or two there'll be such an infernal noise about your ears that you won't be able to hear yourselves. This address went home to the hearts of us all, but there was no cheering. A steady but determined calm had taken the place of any lighter feeling, and it seemed as if the men had made up their minds to go to their work unruffled and not too much excited. End quote. And so, Colonel Wallace, with his 88th, alongside the 45th Regiment, the Nottinghams, counterattacked to push the French off the ridge. They advanced diagonally across the plateau. Grattan continues, picking up the story. Wallace threw himself from his horse and placing himself at the head of the 45th and the 88th with Gwyn of the 45th on one side of him and Captain Seaton of the 88th on the other ran forward at a charging pace into the midst of terrible flame in his front. All was now confusion and uproar. Smoke, fire and bullets, officers and soldiers, French drummers and French drums knocked down in every direction. British, French and Portuguese mixed together while in the midst of all was to be seen Wallace, fighting like his ancestors of old at the head of his devoted followers and calling out to his soldiers, Press forward! Never was defeat more complete, and it was a proud moment for Wallace and Gwyn when they saw their gallant comrades breaking down and trampling under their feet this splendid French division composed of some of the best troops the world could boast of. The leading French regiment, the 36th, one of Napoleon's favourite battalions was nearly destroyed, and the face of the hill was strewed with dead and wounded. End quote. This quick thinking and bravery of Colonel Wallace of the 88th and the redcoats of his regiment, alongside the Nottinghams, had now well and truly broken the French attack in this sector. But the battle was far from over. Just to the right of Grattan's position, seven French battalions under General Foy were now thrown forward. The remainder of Picton's division was too weak and strung out to hold them, but now the communications road that Wellington had built showed its importance, allowing Leif's 5th Division to march rapidly north along the position in support of Picton. They arrived just as the French crested the ridge. It was perfect timing, the red-coated battalions pouring fire into the French as they advanced. Andrew Leith Hay recalled, quote, Colonel Barnes's brigade of General Leaf's corps, composed of the 3rd Royal Scots, 9th and 38th Regiments, had been advanced to the head of the column and consequently first came in contact with the enemy. The 9th Regiment, commanded by Colonel Cameron, being the leading battalion, when about 100 yards distance, wheeled into line firing a volley, the effect of which was terrific. The ground was covered with dead and dying, not new levies or mercenaries, but the elite of the French army. This destructive fire being followed up by an immediate charge, the enemy gave way, rushing down the steep face of the Sierra in utmost confusion. End quote. So once again here, we're seeing line-defeating column time and time again. I think that's kind of the story of the Peninsula War. But let's move on. General Foy, the French commander who was also wounded in this engagement, later wrote of it, the head of my column fell back on its right, despite my efforts. I could not get them to deploy. Disorder set in, and the 17th and 70th raced downhill in headlong flight. This second French reversal marked the end of the major actions on the southern part of the ridge. 
Rainier's corps had been well and truly mauled by the divisions of Picton and Leith. 23 out of 27 infantry battalions involved in this part of the battle had now been broken. But there was no time for the British commander Wellington to relax. Soon the sound of artillery and musketry could be heard further north and Wellington galloped towards it. Marshal Ney's corps was now attacking. Ney had spotted Merlet's division briefly on the crest before it was repulsed and, thinking Rainier's attack had been successful, ordered his own corps forward. He threw his men up the steep, gorse and heather-covered slope against the British left, along the road that ran between the villages of Maura and Busaco. He had two divisions, Wazons on the right of the road and Marchons on the left. It was a total force of 23 battalions. Facing them was Black Bob Crawford's Light Division, as well as Captain Ross's troop of horse artillery, which soon opened up with a deadly fire of shrapnel shells. Crawford watched Loison's division advance, proudly eyeing the superb skirmishing of his riflemen and the Portuguese caçadores as they picked apart the attacking columns. Behind Crawford, hidden out of view of the French, were 1,800 men of his elite 43rd and 52nd regiments. The historian Arthur Bryant takes up the story, quote, Just as the French drums were beating for the final charge, and their officers capering up and down like madmen were waving their hats on their swords and urging their men to rush the last 20 yards and seize Ross's guns on the skyline, Crawford turned to the two famous regiments lying behind him and shouted in a high screaming voice that cleft the uproar, Now, 52nd, revenge the death of Sir John Moore! With a great cheer, the men rushed forward and poured such a fire from the crest into the astonished French that the whole 6,000 were dashed in a few minutes to the bottom. End quote. As was often the case in the Peninsula War, the British bayonet did as much destruction as their muskets. The French lost their footing on the steep slopes and fell back in disorder. Nearby, Marchand's division suffered a similar fate at the hands of Brigadier General Pack's well-drilled and confident Portuguese troops. The French, when seeing the uniforms of their enemy, had assumed that they would have an easy victory. They were wrong. The heavy Portuguese volley fire stopped them in their tracks and forced them to fall back. The battle was now as good as over. Though defeated, the French at Busaco had shown tremendous energy and guts, attacking uphill against a strong natural defensive position. As Jack Weller said, quote, So convinced was Massena of French invincibility that he had rushed headlong into a battle without proper reconnaissance. He would not make that mistake again. The French had forgotten Talavera 14 months before and were surprised by the change in the Portuguese army, which could now be said to have come of age on the 27th of September. The amalgamation of British and Portuguese units produced divisions whose quality was essentially equal to an all-British force of the same size. And that's really important to note for the rest of the war, actually, that that is exactly what would happen. The British and Portuguese regiments would be mixed in the same divisions. The French casualties reflected the difficulty of their task that day. 4,600 killed, wounded or captured, including 300 officers. The Allied troops, on the other hand, suffered around 1,200 casualties, nearly half of them being Portuguese. That gives you a sense of how deeply involved in the fight they were. Marshal Massena could now see his folly. Throwing his men into a frontal assault against the ridge had little chance of success. 
The British and Portuguese troops had destroyed every French attack sent against them. Lyon had beaten Column once more, and Wellington had proved that he was a master of choosing the best ground and using the terrain to conceal his troops and keep the enemy guessing. As the day's fighting petered out, Wellington watched through his telescope as the French troops began to dig in around their bivouac. It was tempting to attack them. Marshal Messina, though, still had thousands of fresh troops, and Wellington knew that he couldn't risk leaving the safety of the ridge to attack the French. Early the next day, Massena's cavalry found a rough track further north that enabled the French to outflank the Allied position. Wellington, much to the irritation of his soldiers, was now forced to order the army to withdraw. It was time to fall back and give the French yet another surprise. The amazing engineering feat that was the lines of Torres Vedras. But that story will have to wait for two more episodes until March. So I hope you enjoyed that, guys. I really enjoyed researching that, actually. I think the Battle of Busaco is quite fascinating in many ways. And it was great to see the Portuguese army come of age. If you enjoyed the episode, please make sure you subscribe. Please share the details with friends or family who you think might also have a love for British military history. I'd also like to point you in the direction of my website, redcoathistory.com, where you can join the mailing list and I'll keep you up to date with a monthly newsletter of links and interesting articles. Next month, I'm speaking to friend of the podcast, Rob, from British Muzzle Loaders, and we're going to be looking at the history and development and use of the Baker rifle. If you're a fellow geek like Rob and I, you want to join us for that because it's really good stuff and we get really into the weeds, as Rob often does. He's an incredibly knowledgeable guy. All right, guys, well, that's all for now. Have a great month and I will speak to you soon.